So this morning we will be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, looking at verses 11 through 27. You can find our passage on page 878 in the Pew Bible. And I'll bring the text up on the screen. Reading from the English Standard Version, hear the word of the Lord. As they heard these things, being the disciples, uh, he proceeded, uh, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a, a nobleman went into a far country to receive a, for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came to him, saying, Lord, your minna has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your minna has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then came another, Lord, here is your minna, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you do not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the minna from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So once again, as uh, Luke has done several times in recent chapters, uh, he gives us the motivation behind Jesus' teaching. Uh, Jesus was drawing near to Jerusalem. I'll bring up that map again from before. You can see he's, he's from, so he's somewhere between Jericho and Jerusalem. He's making the 17-mile uphill hike uh, toward Jerusalem. And, uh, and uh, it, there in Jerusalem, he's going to enter it, uh, the triumphal entry that we, uh, uh, that we note. Uh, and he will be uh, murdered, uh, buried, and then three days later, rise from the dead. But his disciples are expecting something very different. They seem to be expecting some kind of coronation ceremony for Jesus when he arrives in Jerusalem. And to where he would essentially gather uh, uh, Israel uh, to himself and, uh, and exalt Israel back to its proper place uh, as to the, the light to which the nations would be drawn. And uh, instead, uh, uh, Jesus corrects his disciples' misunderstanding of him. 
and in what he is doing. And, and he tells them a parable to prepare them for the thing that they don't expect, which is Jesus's absence. And by absence, I don't mean the three days that he would be in the tomb. They certainly weren't expecting that. But even in the book of Acts, they ask after his resurrection, Lord, now will it be that you will establish the kingdom? He says, no, I am going away, but I am going to send my helper. Right. And then he moves. He goes on. And what does Christ do? Then he ascends into heaven. And so he's preparing them for his absence, his his ascension into heaven and preparing his disciples to live in light of his absence and his impending return. And so, uh, and so Jesus isn't going to do what his disciples thought. And so he takes time here to correct their thinking. And unfortunately, Jesus still has to correct the thinking of his disciples today, doesn't he? Uh, last week, we received a correction about Jesus' purpose. Uh, that, that, that he has come to seek and save the lost. And now he has gone into heaven. And so we ask, while he is in heaven, and we are here on earth, what is the purpose of his disciples? What is our purpose? What is our responsibility as his servants until he returns? There's a whole variety of ideas that are put forward today, but Jesus instructs the church here, and we would do well to listen now, I'll warn you that today's parable is not an easy one. I think you get that just by reading it. Uh, and, but it, it, it does have a very clear structure to it. The whole parable uh, is built around two points, uh, which is, first, the king will depart, and secondly, the king will return. And we'll look at each one today. So first, the king, which is terribly misspelled on that slide, the king... <laughs> Uh, uh, will depart. Just move on to the next slide and hope for better things. Uh, but the king will depart. And while he is gone, he calls for responsible servants. Responsible servants. So noblemen, Jesus says, went off to receive a kingdom. Now that means seems a bit odd. How does that work? Where do you go to go receive your kingdom? I would like my kingdom, please. Right? Uh, but in the ancient world, this would have been something very familiar to his audience because in that time, if you were going to reign over a particular area, you would have to be a, a nobleman type person and you would have to go to Rome to go see the emperor and the emperor would grant you the authority to rule over a particular area. In fact, everyone in Jesus' time right there would have immediately thought about Herod and his son who both each of them had to go do that very thing. Go to Rome and officially be granted the right to rule over their own region or their own kingdom, you could call it. And uh, now the, the man then, he calls ten of his servants and he gives each one of them a minna. Now a minna is simply uh, about 90 to 100 days wages. So a significant sum, but it's not... Uh, the same as a talent. And this is a parable that often gets mixed up with the parable that Matthew records called the parable of the talents. Uh, and a talent is worth something like 60 times more than a minute. All right. We need a conversion chart. I know. But uh, but uh, but a talent is worth a lot more than a minute. 
And, uh, and in that parable, uh, in Matthew, uh, Jesus has the master giving different talents to different servants. But in this parable, he gives each of the, the ten servants the same amount. He gives them the same thing. And so what that means is that Jesus is making a different point here, although they would be related, certainly. Uh, so uh, here the man gives the servants the same amount, but he, and he also gives them the same command. Engage in business until he returns. Go make me some money. Right? That's what he says. Don't really care how you do it, but just go do it. Put his resources to work. The servants now have an obligation to carry out their master's command. And as we will see, they will have to give an account of their work when he returns. And so we have here in this parable the calling of his ten servants to carry out business on behalf of their master uh, and while he's away. And then suddenly we are introduced very quickly, to a, set, a second group of people uh, that represent the opposition to his rule. So there were citizens, presumably not all, not every single citizen, but there was enough of them that they, were, they, they, uh, they sent a contingent of delegates to go, to, the, to go along and protest installing this man as their ruler. Now I mentioned earlier um, how Herod and his son had gone off to Rome uh, to get the right to, do, um, to rule. Well, when Herod's son went, this actually happened to him. The Jews sent a contingent of delegates to the emperor to basically run down the laundry list of abuses that Herod's son had engaged in to protest his rule, and it worked to some degree. He was still installed, but his, his authority was, was diminished. It was, it was lessened. And so that would have been fresh in the minds of Jesus' audience as he tells this parable. And, uh, and when I say he had done bad things, he'd been very cruel. He'd slaughtered some of the Jews. He'd done some pretty awful, awful things. And, and so here's the setup here. We have a soon-to-be ruling king who tasks his servants to do work while he's away. And while he's away, his, his citizens who oppose him uh, actively send off at people to lodge their complaints objecting to his rule. Right, so what, is, what does all this mean? Uh, well, it means simply, as we translate it to the work of the church as Christ's disciples, that we have work to do in a fallen world. We have work to do in a fallen world as Christ's disciples. Uh, Jesus is clearly to be understood in, in, in connection with the nobleman. Uh, he is the one who will soon take leave. Of this earth, he will leave to go off to go receive his kingdom, and we know that he will go off into heaven. He will be seated at, uh, at the throne, not in a earthly throne room, but in the heavenly one. And that he has given his church to every Christian the very same thing: the gospel. He has given to his church the charge: make disciples of all the nations, baptizing. In my name, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey Christ. We are called as ambassadors of Christ. Every church has the gospel. Every Christian has the gospel. The question comes, 
what are we doing with it? What will we do with this treasure? We must see that we are given this responsibility to carry forth the gospel in the midst of a world that stands in opposition to the rule of God and to the rule of Christ, to the rule of our King. The citizens of this world hate Jesus. They do not want him to rule over them. He will rule, but they just don't want it. And so we have protest after protest against any idea that Jesus ought to rule over our lives. Jesus may be accepted, uh, acceptable as long as he only gives advice, as long as he only criticizes the people I don't like or the people who don't like me. But not if he criticizes us, not if he makes demands of us, not if he uh, rebukes us, then, then he's not, that's not allowed. Further, he is not allowed to contradict our desires, no matter how sinful the scriptures may label them. And here we are as the church here at Bailey. Now, our, our, our Savior Jesus, has, he's done the long journey to heaven, right? He's off on his journey. And, 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 but he has sent his spirit. To live inside of us, to connect us to him, to give us the, the power and the strength, the enablement that we need. Uh, and, so, and so it comes down to, well, what are we doing with the gospel? Do we believe the gospel? Do we, do we share the gospel? Do we live our lives in light of the gospel? Do we live as Christians? The third vow to be a member of our church is... Do we live by the help, the grace of the Holy Spirit? Do we promise to endeavor to live our lives as befits a Christian? Matthew Henry wrote that Christians have not been baptized nor ministers ordained so that we can be idle for the kingdom of God. We should be active, seeking faithfulness, for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. Because as Jesus' parable shows, if the nobleman goes off to be crowned, uh, then uh, we also know that if the king leaves, the king will also return. Verses 15 to 27. And when the king returns, servants will have to give an account of themselves. Now we are only given the accounting of three of the ten servants, but that is enough. The first said he took his minna and he multiplied it with the return of a thousand percent. All right. I want that fund for my retirement. Right. Thousand percent return. Take it. Right. Uh, and he is given the uh, the authority to rule over 10 cities. The second servant, he only made a meager 500 uh, percent uh, return on investment. Uh, ROI, uh, and, and, and likewise, he is rewarded and commended by his master. The third servant's response is worth examining. It's what he's, Jesus spends the most time on. He reveals, this servant reveals, that he kept the exact amount that he was given. He didn't lose it. Uh, he kept it in a handkerchief, kept it real safe. 
He kept it, though, in what would have been considered the most irresponsible way to handle money in the ancient world. So much so that one commentary that specializes in Old Testament background said this servant is either stupid, treasonous, or both. And, but the servant then actually reveals that he has quite a low opinion of his master. In fact, he hates his master, uh, just like the citizens who were opposed to him. He calls him hard and severe, accuses him of, of, of taking things that don't belong to him. And the master's response is to call him a wicked servant. Not just an unfaithful servant, but a wicked servant. We should take notice of that. He condemns the servant with his own words and highlights that if he really did think that his master was, this, was the hard and severe man that he says he is, then there was a very simple way he could have still got a return on his investment by just giving, giving the money over to the creditors who would go lend it out, and then he would get the money back with interest. But he didn't even do that. Why? Because he hates the master, even though he is his servant. And this leads us to the very hard reality of Jesus' parable, which is that judgment will fall on the enemies of the king. Judgment will fall on the enemies of the king. The master commands that uh, the servant, that what he, whatever he has to be taken from him and given to the one who already has ten cities and ten minas. Apparently he got given those off screen. And when it was objected that he already has so much, he has the most of all the servants, uh, the master responds saying that what, even, what he, uh, even to the one who does not have what he has shall be given, and to the one who has more shall be given to him. And then he commands something that is very shocking to a modern audience but would have been very unsurprising to those in the ancient world. He says, bring those people who oppose my rule in front of me and kill them, slaughter them. Uh, now, uh, we, we're going to get to the meaning of, of this for the church and the, and the world in a moment. But simply in the parable, we have to understand that the enemies of the king will be brought to judgment. A king who seeks to establish his reign is not going to allow his enemies to go running around willy-nilly forever. He will put an end to all who oppose his rule. Now, we would object to such things today because we'd say, well, what right does a fallen man have to slaughter other people in this way? And we would be right to do so. Uh, and th now, there's a fair amount of history we could get into at this point and, uh, and highlight that this, this kind of occurrence was well known and unsurprising to anybody in Jesus' audience. Nobody in Jesus' audience would have been, would have been like horrified and be like, oh, a king did that? They'd be like, yeah, that's, that's about, that sounds about right. You know, that's what, that would have been their response. Um, but this is not Jesus thus commending this practice for, say, the 2024 election, you know, although some might recommend it. Uh, he is simply making the point that those who oppose the rule of the king will fall under, uh, under very real and painful and bloody judgment. So what is the point of this parable? What is the meaning of it? What is Jesus uh, communicating is if I was to actually put this into a single sentence, it would be this: Seek the joy of your king. Seek the joy of your king. In his commentary, Del Ralph Davis, the pastor and scholar, is right when he argues that we can deduce from this text that Christ truly delights 
in the faithfulness of his servant. Now, there's, there's something in us that kind of automatically pushes back against that because uh, we know the, the, the dangers of legalism and, the, and Phariseeism. We, uh, we also know the faults of our own service, and we worry that our faults are thus defective. But I would, I would, I would counter that, that we, we are not, it's not saying that we are expected perfection, or rather, or some kind of like, we have some kind of quota of converts that we have to somehow reach, or we don't, because uh, I want you to notice what, what's particularly about the wicked servant. His attitude about the master. And secondly, he didn't even try. He did nothing. Okay, it's like it, it would have even been something if it, it, it maybe even tried to secure it a bit. He just carry, carried, carried around the minna uh, in a handkerchief in his pocket. The Apostle Paul says when it comes to conversion, the spread of the gospel, the, you know, evangelism. He says, look, I planted the seed, Apollos watered, but who gave the growth? God gave the growth, right? And so this is not about results-based Christian living. The question that, that we're being pressed to ask is not, to, in, this, in this parable, I truly believe that the question that we're being pressed to ask is not, is my service to God perfect? The question that I rather that I rather think Jesus is asking is, do you care? Do I care about the gospel? Do I care about Jesus ruling over me in my life? Because if the answer is yes, then I would say, be encouraged then. Don't despair. Don't, don't freak out. Don't start going into some weird kind of navel-gazing kind of, uh, um, uh, you, know, uh, um, you know, worrisome, uh, self-evaluation process, all right? Uh, we can talk about the how-tos later, about how to live a, a faithful Christian life. Uh, but honestly, the passage here is an exhortation to Christ's disciples to seek faithfulness with what he has entrusted us with while we live here on the earth. One scholar wrote that in the Christian life, we don't stand still. We use the gifts that God has given us or we lose them. It's never neutral. This passage, but this passage is a warning passage as well. It's a warning passage especially to those who say they're Christians but don't care to live like it. Where there's no distinctive Christian stamp upon their life, in their conduct, in their speech, in, their, in, in, in how they, in their relationships. I mean, Matthew Henry, I, I always read Matthew Henry, several commentaries I read for every sermon. Matthew Henry is one of them. Uh, and uh, Matthew Henry, and he wrote hundreds of years ago about this passage. But he said, what, but he said this then, I'm going to paraphrase. But he says, whatever reasons uh, pe uh, may be given by people who go to church uh, uh, but don't actually even try to live as Christians, whatever reasons they may give, the real reason is, and this is, this is the quote, the real reason is a reigning indifference to the interest of Christ in his kingdom and the coldness of their hearts toward Christ. The fact that people just don't care about whether or not the gospel advances, whether it gains ground or it loses ground, that people just don't care. And so he said, these are the kind of people who go to church, but they just don't care about these things, um, as long as they can have a nice, easy life. And so uh, 
And so this is not, I always want to be careful because I don't want to just jump into questioning, I don't want to move people into questioning salvations, right? But this is where I kind of go, okay, but that's why I talk about like, talk about warning signs, red flags, because, it, because it's like, well, uh, you know, are there moments where I don't care? Yeah, there's moments where I don't care, okay? <laughs> like, we're in my flesh, I am acting sinfully. Absolutely. I'm not talking about are there moments of sinfulness in our lives. But, but, I'm, but this is Jesus speaking to the people who don't care. People who say, yes, I'm a servant of Christ. I'm a disciple of Jesus. I'm a Christian, whatever. But they don't care to live like it at all, right? I'm not saying that person is definitely not a Christian. But, uh, but we, know that, we know that we're supposed to give an accountability before the Lord. That we will give an account of our lives. And that Paul says that some, some people who are Christians will escape with nothing but their souls. But the, but the reality is judgment begins with the church and then goes out to the world. And so there is an accounting that we have to give. And so this is what – I was actually talking about this in Sunday school uh, with our youth. So Because uh, here's the thing I want to be careful about because – the wrong response to this is to th- therefore move from here and go, okay, therefore God will accept me or love me or, re- or, or only he will reward me with eternal life if I do X, you know, A, B, C, and D. That is not what I'm saying. Rather, uh, the example that I gave to the youth was the relationship they have with their parents. They, uh, their parents, if they're good parents and not evil parents, they're, if they're good parents, you know, evil parents say, I will love you, and you will can be my child, and I will accept you as my child. You can stay my child if you're successful, if you obey me, if you do these things or that, then I'll love you, right? We say, that's a bad parent, right? But to, our, but to their children, parents say, no, no, no. I love you because you're my child, right? I love you, all right, because you're my child. And so, and so I was talking to the youth and saying, look, your parents love you. Because you're your children, not because you do certain things, not because you take out the trash and you do your chores, right? But at the same time, do your parents delight when you obey them? Yes. All right? Our, our, our God is not different. All right? We don't do Christian things in order to get God to love us, but because he loves us, we do Christian things. Y'all see the difference? That is the point here is that we care. We love because God first loved us. So this is not meant to like a parable meant to terrify, but it's meant to say, hey, in the midst, while Jesus is in heaven and we're on the earth and the church is on the earth, we are called to faithfulness as his servants. And that even if we could, even if there is a way that the wicked servant is skates by and gets away with nothing but his soul, that is not a, that's not a goal, Right? It's not like, well, that's, that's what I want right there. You know, I want to go for that. I want, to, I want to lose everything when I give an account before the Lord and just escape from my soul. I got real high expectations for myself, right? That's not what we're aiming for. We desire to please Christ, desire to please God. But we know that but that desire comes from the fact that he has accepted us, that he loves us because he has reconciled, reconciled us into, into himself in Jesus. So I don't want this parable to send people off into, a, into an unhelpful, unhealthy, spiritual despair spiral. But at the same time, we have to be careful to, in, our, in our guarding against that to, to, uh, uh, to not toss out obedience. To not toss out the requirement 
of pursuing holiness in our lives, of advancing in, in improving our baptism, as Peter says, of, of the obedience that proceeds from faith, as Paul says. And so as, we, so as we take this and we receive this from Christ, we need to know that we need to be reminded. There's these negative reminders that God will use to us to kind of wake us up sometimes and go, oh, judgment's going to fall upon the enemies of God. I don't want to live like an enemy of God. Why? Because I belong to him by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so I live differently. I endeavor to live differently. And one of the signs that I do is my repentance. It's repentance for my sin and my failures to do so. And he is good and he will forgive and uphold. And so again, we want to go back to the beginning of this. Why did Jesus tell this parable? He's trying to freak Peter out. Is that what he wanted? He's want to mess with Peter. You know, he just get a little too high. I'm going to just mess with him. All right. He didn't want his disciples, whether it was them or us, to get the wrong idea. Jesus is the king who's gone away for a long time, physically, in body. Okay? We know, though, that he has been enthroned and that he rules presently, rules over the universe. We know that he is head of the church. We also know that he has entrusted his church with the gospel, what Paul calls that great treasure that we store in these jars of clay. And so weary and worrisome Christians, your king is not seeking to crush you or to cause you to be distraught. Bring to him your weaknesses. Bring to him your faults, your very darkest sins, and you will find a soft place of gentleness, rest, forgiveness, peace, and love. He will give you the power you need. But let us beware of becoming those hardened religious church attenders who look good on the outside but do not care for the mercy of God who do not care about the plight of the lost or the beauty of the grace of God. Do not worry about producing enough. Simply seek to be faithful with what little God has entrusted you with. And your Savior will not only help you, he will not only strengthen you, he will bless you and reward you with eternal joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these parables, which often terrify us because they bring out right before our very eyes our weaknesses, our faults, our failures. It brings to our mind the things that we, 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 we are afraid to confess, that we realize our own indifference towards the kingdom. that's also why you give us your word you give us your word to your disciples to your children who care because of your grace because of your love and so father we pray that we would receive the correction that comes from jesus that we would set our eyes upon that which is primary upon that which is eternal upon that which is truly glorious and lasting and that we would repent of that it's turned from those things which are falling away and fading away so rapidly and lord may you be at work in your church here 
Father, that, uh, that the, the minas that you have given to us, uh, that, that, whatever, that, that you have, what you have entrusted to us, particularly the gospel itself and everything else you've entrusted to us, Lord, that we would be faithful servants. And Lord, may you forgive us for how we have not been and lead us in your holy way. Lead us in a way of obedience that, is, that, of, that, that exudes with faithfulness and joy and love for the king that results in fruitfulness for the sake of your kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's respond now by standing and 